This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I'm really thrilled to have as my guest today Constance Llewellyn, adjunct curator at the University of California, Berkeley Art Museum, and Pacific Film Archive. Our conversation today is about the exhibition State of Mind, which Constance Llewellyn co-curated with Karen Moss, adjunct curator at the Orange County Museum of Art. Thank Correct. you so much for doing this. You're welcome. It's I'm really thrilled to have you. First of all, let's talk about maybe the backstory. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the context of these artists? Um, interestingly, you know, I've um, done a lot of work um, with art from this period, and many of the artists that are in our exhibition are artists I've worked with previously, um, Paul Koss, Bruce Nauman, Doug Hall, just a lot of them. And this is an exhibition I've, I've had in the back of my mind for a long time and was hoping to, to accomplish before I even knew about the Getty Initiative, or before the Getty knew about the Getty Initiative. It so happened that I found out that Karen Moss, and at the time Liz Armstrong, who was still at the museum, were interested in a similar idea, and we decided to join forces. And then the Getty Initiative was announced. And we then became eligible for the grant, which, of course, is how we could accomplish the show. Um, first of all, I want to start with the title itself. Why did you decide to call it State of Mind? Well, it was sort of a, you know, kind of a pun because of uh, conceptual art. This is, a sh this is an exhibition that focuses on the first generation of conceptual artists in California. And so, you know, mind concepts, it was that idea, the entire state, state of mind, and then subtitle New California Art Circuit 1970, which gave us a little leeway. It basically covers that sort of narrow period of the late 60s to about 73, 74. Sometimes we went as far as 75, especially because we wanted to acknowledge um, the women who were coming into the art world at that time uh, in the early 70s on the wave of Yes, feminism. of course. And I think this is a very innovative approach that you took. Instead of doing it chronologically or doing it by... Um, you know, the artists from Southern California, the artists from Northern California. You know, you divided it according to subjects. Yes. Well, first of all, since it was such a short amount of time, it really, the chronology, the idea of doing it chronology didn't really make any sense. And I thought a long time about how to organize this, and I really wanted to poke a hole into the idea that there were two distinct parts of California producing very different kinds of art, which is the way everybody always looks at this, if they look at it at all. You know, Northern California is supposed to be more about the body and performance and maybe with Buddhist influence and so forth. Southern California, you have Hollywood, uh, a lot of photography. Right. And while these are not really false, they're very simplistic, and I... In Pankotic examination, it became clear that there were several areas in which artists were concerned, no matter whether they were from the North or the South. There were lots of back and forth, and there was a lot of commonality. And also, it would allow people to look at this work in a different way. It would, it would allow us to juxtapose artworks that were unexpected. Um, for example, you know, you could have uh, Bastian Otter, who does these solitary walks through Los Angeles and at night called In Search of the Miraculous, one night in Los Angeles. At the same time, Howard Freed in San Francisco is doing something very similar, and, I'm, I, and I know that neither of them knew of the other one at that time. But it is interesting that they were approaching a kind of solitary nocturnal performance in similar ways in different parts of the now, state. 
conceptual art was going on, and you, you talk about this in your book, in, in, the, in the catalog, all over the world at that same time. What do you think was a difference between the California artists and the artists, let's say, from New York or Europe? This is obviously going to be a generalization, but in general, artists in New York, let's take as examples, Saul Lewitt, uh, Joseph Kassouf, Mel Bachner, um, as some of the primary conceptual artists in New York, were very concerned with um, linguistic systems and semiotics. They were not so interested in the sort of experiential aspect of conceptual art that you find in California. So it was much sort of narrower. It was likely to be not concerned with materials, but quite dry. And the art in California was much broader. There was a lot of experimentation. The body was an important subject and also material for artists. Uh, the experiential, as I said, was important. Materials were important. And I think because, partly because, California, being far from New York, being far from the major art institutions, galleries, press, criticism, had a lot more freedom. Um, yes. Europe is a different story altogether. I think in some ways the art in California was closer to the art in Europe at that time than it was to the art in New York. Now, as I said, this is a big generalization because you can take Vito Acconci, whose work is very much in line with what a lot of artists were doing on the West Coast. That's just one example. And, of course, linguistic systems were not alien to the artists in California. John Baldessari certainly based his work on words, but in a very different way with a very different flavor. Or humor, maybe. Humor is something that um, is another aspect of, of art in California. Think of Baldessari, Wegman, and others. And, of course, in New York, there was this idea that if something was humorous, it wasn't serious. And right, we know right. that something can be humorous and serious. Absolutely. Now, now you, you, the cover of the catalog has this fabulous um, photograph, which sort of shows, it seems to me, like freedom, you know, kind of a feeling of freedom. Freedom. You know, this, so it seemed to me a little bit like about danger and being on the edge. Okay. And so t can you talk about that photograph that, that, that you chose for the cover? And the catalog cover is, is an, um, illustrates a detail from a work by Robert Kinlock called Eight Natural Handstands that he did in the late 60s. And it just seemed to me such a perfect metaphor for this show. As I said, it's about freedom, it's about danger, it's about being on the edge, it's about daring. Um, Robert Kinlock is, is an artist that, that most people are not aware of. Uh, he was active in the Northern California scene during the late 60s, early 70s, and then really dropped out for decades, really, uh, for various personal reasons. And I also like the idea of putting something on the cover that wasn't the expected. You know, it wasn't right. an image by Ed Boucher or an image by John Baldessari, but here's someone who is really doing wonderful work, but people were not, people do not know his work, or at least now, I hope they do, but certainly most people would not be familiar with it. The other thing which is so great about this exhibition is there's, there are many pieces that you've, people have heard about in the art world, have heard about for many years, um, but you get to see them in the show. Like, for example, the, the, the piece that you have of Baldessari's where he does the map yeah, California in California. Map California map piece. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that piece, you know, what he did, and, and, and also the whole issue of mapping? Yeah, well, out you know, um, I immediately thought of that piece um, when I was thinking about the show. And, in fact, for a while, Karen and I were thinking that would be a piece that would be great for the cover, because, in a way, it encapsulates a lot of what the show is about. Um, you know, John, as we all know, had been a painter, and then this is very soon after he gives up painting and decides to do a completely different kind of work. And so I put this in a section. It's the first section of the exhibition, which has to do with getting out of the studio, getting out into the land, and also the idea of mapping and documentation. So John goes up and he finds a map of California, just a typical map, and where the letters are on the map, he actually finds the actual geographical location. <laughs> And then describes the letter in the land right. with a variety of, of materials, wood or stones or dye, and has them photograph has the location photographed from um, a helicopter. Is it a helicopter or an airplane? I'll just say from above, and um, that constitutes the piece along with the description of the project. And I should say he did this with his friends George and Judy Nicolaitis. He's from San. He's from south of San Diego, and he was. Um, teaching, probably at this time he might have already been teaching at CalArts, but prior to that he'd been teaching at a junior college in Chula Vista, California called Southwestern College. And when I first met him, that's where he was teaching. So when did you well, first meet Well, I happened to be um, a student in San Diego at that time. Was he Excuse a teacher me? of yours? No, he no, he wasn't, yours? but I did meet him around that time. You know, I wanted to talk about the environmental projects that, you know, you moved to next. You know, people like the Harrisons, who, who, whose work, you know, deal with the environment. Well, I think for one thing, uh, nature was an important uh, aspect of, of art that was being made on the West Coast. And, um, of course, the Harrisons were the first artists to really devote themselves to the idea of environmental um, degradation and solutions. Um, and they use mapping as one of the primary ways of, of talking about their issues, mapping, photography, descriptions, drawings. And we have an early work in the show called The Book of Lagoons, which is one of their first major projects. And then there was the issue that you move on to were sort of political subjects. Like obviously, the Vietnam War was going on. So you have artists in the show addressing Yes, and I think that that, again, um, not that there wasn't anti-war activity on the East Coast, there certainly was, but um, the putting it into the artwork was something that was more common on the West Coast. And, and this is approached in many different ways. Uh, on the level of performance, Terry Foss, who was one of the major artists in Northern California, uh, does this piece called Defoliation, where he takes a flamethrower and destroys the flower bed on the campus of the University of California outside the then Berkeley Art Gallery, and, um, you know, it's a, sh it's a shocking performance and obviously relates to what was going on in Vietnam at the time. Well, that was one way that um, artists addressed anti-war sentiment. The other was Martha Rossler, who there was a graduate student at that time in San Diego, UCSD. And down in, in San Diego, despite it being a very conservative political community, around the university there was a lot of, of political activity. And... She does. Oh, she continues a series of photo montages that she actually started in New York before she moved to San Diego, which are um, anti-war images, just opposing 
images of, of domestic settings with, with, uh, with images of violence and war. And these, of course, are extremely well known now. And then another artist who people are not as familiar with, Fred Lonadier, who was also in San Diego um, around the university at that time, who does a piece called 29 Arrests, and he documents the arrest of these young protesters protesting the Cambodian um, bombing in Cambodia, and um, later on goes on to do a lot of work having to do with um, labor issues, as does Alan Sakura, who also is represented in the show with a very early work um, about labor. So... Um, there, I should also say that in Northern California, there are three faculty members of San Francisco State College then. It was college, not university. Uh, Joe Hawley, Mel Henderson, and Alfred Young staged spectacular events that, um, in one case, were about the oil spills, <clears throat> an oil spill that had taken place uh, in the San Francisco Bay and predicted an even larger oil spill by writing the word oil and dye on the water and having it photographed from a helicopter, and then also doing other uh, street events. So they were all taking the strategies of um, civil disobedience and using them for artistic uh, expressions of political nature. There was also a piece uh, that when you first entered the gallery, and I described that piece, the Alan Sakula piece. I, I think it's just called Untitled Pride Sequence. It, um, it, right. it shows uh, in a series of slides uh, workers leaving a factory. It's a defense factory in Southern California. And it was his really first major um, piece. And he told me recently that it's the piece that's most often borrowed, interestingly enough. Um, but it sort of set the stage for the, all of the work he's done subsequently that has had to do with workers. He right now has a show up, in fact, at the San Francisco Art Institute, which, of course, is not the same, you know, the work is quite different, but it's, it's about labor on ships and the shipping industry. So his concerns have remained very consistent throughout the years. Yes. The other thing that sort of struck me is that many of these people turned out, ended up, you know, in, people in your show ended up being teachers of, of sort of our next generation of Absolutely. artists, you know, Absolutely. who came after them. So... So one of them who um, I think has not got, I mean, he's he's famous and all of that, but people, you know, are not as familiar with with the work as they probably should be, is Douglas Hubler. Yeah, he was extremely well known um, at the time and then um, has sort of faded a little bit, but I think now is being newly recognized. He moved uh, to California from Massachusetts. He was already involved in, um, you know, very actively on the scene in the on the East Coast. And he moved because he, he was teaching at Cal, he was asked to teach at Cal Arts, which is where he taught until he died. And, um, so in a way he brought a lot of sort of East Coast sensibility to the West Coast and was in, in fact a very important teacher. But I think the point also that's interesting is that a lot of these artists in California made their livings as teachers and the schools were really important as meeting places and places for the exchange of ideas as well as for teaching the next generation of students, which I think is less uh, an issue on the East Coast where artists were not necessarily defined by where they taught. Um, so CalArts, of course, is the most important site in Southern California for this kind of work, and the San Francisco Art Institute is, is 
is similarly that place in Northern California, although there were other schools that were important as well, UC Berkeley, um, University of Santa Clara, um, Otis, and so forth. So um, he, the piece that you have in the show is, is also one of these pieces where he goes out of the studio that he sort of made, he, there was some kind of a, of a comment, I'm sort of paraphrasing, that there's so many objects in the world, I don't that want to make more objects. That was a very it's been quoted, yes, I don't know how many times since. Yeah, the world is full of objects, I don't need to add them, something like that. But he, yeah, there are two pieces in the show by Douglas Hubler. Both of them are photographic. And in one case, he has not yet actually moved, but he, two friends of his are, go to Los Angeles, and he instructs them to take stickers and find I think it's eight locations, just anonymous locations, any any place, and to put a sticker somewhere and then to photograph it. And that becomes the work along with the description. And so he's, he's completely removed from it. I mean, he has merely given the instructions. He's really relinquishing authorship in a sense. And that's a location yes. piece. And, you know, he did a series called Location. He did a series called Duration. The duration piece that we have in the show consisted of his mailing a, a little package back and forth across the country from Massachusetts to Berkeley, with about five or six stops in between. And each time it's misaddressed, so it gets sent back with a little notice that it's being returned. And the piece consists of all those notices <laughs> and the little package itself and the description of the project. You, you move on to is... Um, the women and women's, um, like you, you call it yes. domestic space. I mean, you present a, a, a very important pieces by women. Can you, can you talk about some of these pieces, like, for example, like Susan sure. Mogul or I, uh, sure. Eleanor I mean, Anton? Sure. Well, some of the women in the show were actually working um, starting in around 1970. Uh, people like Bonnie Shirk and Linda Mary Montano in San Francisco uh, and then Suzanne Lacey, Susan Mogul, I mean Siegelhoff, uh, a little bit later in Southern California, um, both Suzanne Lacey and Susan Mogul were involved with the first feminist uh, program at Fresno and then Cal Arts. In their work, all of these women are sort of questioning the roles of women in a patriarchal society. And they're also, uh, especially in Northern California, doing work in which they're making very little distinction between their, their work and their life, and they engage in role-playing very often. This is true in both parts of the state, and not only there, I mean, in, in the East Coast as well. So there are certain characteristics that I think women share really throughout, the, throughout the, nationally, not just locally. So Susan is using humor in this very, very funny striptease, which is a reverse striptease because she actually starts out naked and then puts clothes on, all the while talking about the clothes and where she got them. So it's sort of about, you know, consumerism and it's about how women uh, present themselves and it's also about her mother. Eileen Siegelov's famous mom tapes where, you know, she sort of has this ongoing dialogue with her mother and again it's sort of about that relationship and also about the situation of a sort of middle-class girl growing up in Beverly Hills. And then in Northern California, Linda Mary, oh, I, I should say also Suzanne Lacey, of course, who's become an enormously influential not only artist but teacher, who gets her start in the feminist program and later on goes on to do spectacular performances. Um, but in these early years, she's doing a lot of body-oriented work, 
that has also to do with her interest in, in medicine. She actually started out studying medicine, thinking she might go on to be a, a pre-med student. And in Northern California, Bonnie Scherz and Linda Mary Montano did a lot of street interventions and performances and also engaged in role-playing where Linda did a whole series of works called Odd Jobs where she offered to do services for people. She had a nurse's outfit. She could do nursing. She could do cleaning and so gardening. And think about relational right. aesthetics and, and people like Ben, ben Kinmont, who happens to be Bob Kinmont's son, offering house cleaning as art. I mean, you know... 40 years later, yes. Bonnie Scherf was bringing palm trees and sod and cows into various urban locations in San Francisco to sort of bring the urban, bring the, bring nature into the urban environment. And think now of these people who are doing these little parklets and little mini parks in the city, you know, as if it was completely new. So yes. I think that, it, you know, I was interested in, in making those connections for people. Then there's a section where actually Ruche is sort of, you know goes through the you know, this this whole section of his books and 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 you know, the whole issue of the city and and um, the yeah, street. The city, the street. Well, you know, once artists are no longer in their studio, and this is the case for most of them, they're out in the, in nature or they're in the city. They're either using the city as a subject or they're actually doing works in the streets. So Rouché seemed like the perfect introduction to this session with the Sunset Strip book, very well-known book, where he documents every building on the Sunset Strip in 1966, so you have this picture of exactly what the city looked like at that moment. And juxtaposed with that is Paul McCarthy, a work that people are probably not very familiar with, called May 1st, 1971, that he made very soon after moving from Northern California to Southern California, and he sets up a key. He has a camera um, probably in the second or third story of the building, and he photographs the same corner 20-something times. And so that not uh, unlike Sunset Strip, where the car is moving and the pictures are being taken from the moving car, you have a stationary camera, and he's taking the same corner at each side, but the cars change each time. <laughs> so I think they're, they're nicely juxtaposed. Yes. And both of which, you know, also recognize the fact that what defines Los Angeles above and beyond anything else is the car. But then, you know, there are all, all these other artists who are doing works in the street, performing in the street, uh, and, you know, they're all you know, grouped in that section. People, again, like Scherf in, in Montana, and Bastian Otter, and Herr Van Elk, and Al Rupersberg in one instance. So, yeah. And then you have, like, some... You, you show... Um, Al Rupersberg uh, taking well, over a hotel. hotel. I mean, that was that section had to do okay. with artists who were going out and um, finding alternative ways to show their work. Partly because there were no other ways for them to show their work. These works were not going to be shown in galleries or in museums. So in Al's case, he rents he rents a house and he turns it into a hotel for a couple of months. And it was a hotel in the sense that you could actually go down and rent a room and sleep in it for 30-something dollars a night. And each room that he designed had a theme. So uh-huh. there was the Jesus room that had this huge wooden cross that, that <laughs> occupied most of the room. Then there was a room that was uh, dedicated to ultraviolet, the Andy Warhol superstar. Then there was the Al room in which there were a number of images of Al, cardboard cutouts of Al in various outfits, all of, and, and in all his flashing the peace sign. So uh, it was humorous, 
But it was also the idea of creating a community. L.A. is famously uh, always, people always talk about how it's, you know, because it's so diffused and, and spread out that there aren't many places for artists to congregate. But also because he had to make his own, yes. he had to make his own installation in his own space. You know, he took control of the entire situation. And there was a performance by Carrie Allen opening night. And what's nice is that performance had never been heard since, but Carrie was able to find the original um, tape and we had it cleaned and transferred to DVD. So that plays in the exhibition. There's the brochure for the hotel. There's the guest book so you can actually see who stayed. And also, just coincidentally, uh, French TV was in seven, was in Los Angeles doing a program on Le Côte West, the West Coast, and they came down to the hotel and talked to Al and walked through some of the rooms. And this is the only imagery we have of those rooms. And luckily, I was, we were able to get a clip from that TV program that's part of the installation. The other thing, you know, which was so great was that you, you were able, like a lot of these Chris Burden, for example, Chris Burden's um, videos of, of performances, I had no idea that they were even recorded, that, that, that you have them. But in the, you in know, the what was exciting for Karen and for me is to find works in the, find works by artists, even as well-known as Chris Burden, let's say, works that... But people hadn't really seen it. We've been hearing about it. Well, not know, only that, but there were works that had never been shown. I mean, in, in Chris's case, it's that... Um, piece called Being Photographed, Looking Out, Looking In, where he yes. invited people to come to a space and photograph them as they entered and instructed them to climb a ladder. To, at the top of this very rickety ladder, they reclined on this equally rickety sort of platform, and then there was a hole in the ceiling, and they looked through a scope to the sky. And then they came down the stairs, and then they were as they were leaving the building, they looked into a little peephole that was in a closed door, and they saw Chris Burden sitting on the toilet. That was the looking in part. So this piece consists of all wow. of photographs of, I can't remember how many, 40-some-odd uh, people as they entered, and then a drawing of the entire installation and a description of what went on. So it was thrilling to find that piece, and we have the scope also, um, to have that piece in the show because, as I said, it never had been exhibited before. And in the case of Bill Wesman, we found some of his very early skits, the ones everybody's familiar with, we found a lot of outtakes. I can't go through now how we found them, but we did. And I asked Bill yes. if we could use them in the show, and he agreed, and also allowed us to show some of those very early photographs that had never been shown before. They were in a box in his studio. And he said, oh, yes, you know, fine, you know, just pick out what you want to show. <laughs> So it's great to find works that are um, unfamiliar, even by artists who are very well known, like Wegman and, and Burden. Um, even the Michael Asher, I think, wasn't that a piece that I don't know. Shown you know, before? it's a good question. It must have been shown, but maybe once, and maybe, and and certainly not known. And bringing up Michael right. Asher, um, you know, the show as it has closed in Orange County, but it's opening at the Berkeley Art Museum February 29th. And we were able to include a work in another work by Asher that just for architectural reasons we couldn't accomplish in Orange County, but it's one of his early air pressure pieces, so it's a column of air. And as people will walk through up the stairs at the Berkeley Art Museum into the lobby, they may encounter a shaft of, of air that's coming down from the ceiling. 
They may not also because it's placed in such a way that you're not forced to go through it, but you very well might. And one of the very few pieces right. that Michael did early on that can be recreated. As you know, Michael is the artist par excellence of, um, you know, situationally and site-specific work so that it's difficult to reproduce yes. the work of his. This is, as I said, one of the very few that you can. So it's very difficult to do. It sounds simple, but it's, it, it's very difficult to do. But we have managed to do it, so I'm very excited about that. Because, you know, you do, you do talk about that in the catalog, the fact that um, a lot of the, ca- the work was site-specific. Like maybe now work that we consider conceptual could be shown in, in different places, but these were designed to be the Yeah, I mean, it, that's true of a lot of the work, but, but most particularly of Michael Asher. Then I wanted to talk about yes. Ant Farm. You know, film. You know, you know, film people. I mean, you, you even mentioned this group, Video Freaks, that I actually haven't heard about for you know many years. But I, I remember them for the, you know for the early seventies, yeah. going back east. Yeah. Um, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, sort of art, artists who are really you know going out and and, and taking. You know, footage or, do, or making documentary kinds. Yeah, of um, Video Freaks. They're actually not in the show, but because uh, they, as you mentioned, were not in California. But um, there was there were several video collectives in those days. The other was called Rain. Uh, there were three or four, and Ant Farm was one, where they actually um, were going out and trying to use television in a de- democratic way. In fact, they were trying to create a kind of alternative video or television. And um, Ant Farm, for instance went and photographed the 72 conventions and presented their take on them, the Democratic and the Republican. And then they did some very, very uh, iconic early video, which is actually not early enough to be in our show, but um, Media Burn and The Eternal Frame, both of which were extremely influential and have been shown all over the world. Media Burn is a comment on uh, media saturation and, um, and, and the media in general, and the eternal plane is a reenactment of the Kennedy assassination. But Ant Farm, in our show, we showed um, early work where they were trying to promote this alternative architecture, because they were all architects to begin with, but they were not interested in being architects in the traditional sense. So they in- created these inflatable structures, and they would go across the country in their media van, which was very high-tech for the time. You know, a lot of these artists were... You know, had to take, it was a big risk to do some of these pieces. Some of them were even weren't they, weren't some of them like even well. In one case, and, um, uh, uh, there I mean, was a, an interesting situation where um, the this is interesting because, as you know, the Orange County Museum used to be the Newport Harbor Museum. At that time, Tom exactly. Garver was the director, and he invited Tom Marioni, who, as you yes. know, was one of the primary, not only conceptual artists in San Francisco, but a catalyst for a lot of what went on because he had his own museum, the Museum of Conceptual Art, which was the site of a lot of this activity. And he was invited to yes. bring a group of artists, the artists that were in his circle, down to do an exhibition in Orange County at the Newport Harbor. So he got together Bonnie Scherf and Terry Fox and Howard Freed and Paul Koss and Mel Henderson, who was one of those three artists from San Francisco State I described earlier, and George Bowling, who was a videographer and videotaped the whole thing. And they took a limousine and drove down to Orange County and they did their show. But on, on route, 
other things occurred that were all part of the project. The project was called the San Francisco Performance. And we have video and we have objects and we have other documentation in the show. But one thing that happened was Mel Henderson, whose work has always been very political, was just soon after the Attica prison riots in New York. So he and had, yes. had Paul Cox help him. They spelled out the word Attica in Christmas lights on the side of a hill. It turned out to be on the property of the Irvine Foundation. So the police came, yeah. and Tom Garber only had enough money to bail one of them out. So I spent the night in jail. Yes. All that information but, is you know, in the show. Yes, because, you know, people forget that um, at that time, Newport Harbor, I mean, not only, I mean, even later, I mean, until MOCA was started, mostly people saw this sort of cutting-edge art not in in the major museums. I mean, they were seeing them in, uh, you know, I mean, Newport was really, you know, a place where people saw many very cutting-edge shows. It's true, and I think that's one thing that, I mean, Karen and I felt this was such a good fit because both of our museums had histories that um, support this work, and both in terms of exhibition and collection. And I also want to mention another group that we didn't mention, Sands Cafe, because they're very little known but very important. They were a group of, uh, two of them were students at UC Berkeley, and they rented a um, an old greasy spoon in Berkeley and, and staged um, exhibitions, one of which was called the Rotting Food Show, which consisted of rotting food. But their most notorious piece, and this was another case of, of sort of a civil disobedience in using the U.S. mail. Um, they sent out false collection notices to thousands of people in San Francisco and asked them to mail, I think it was $73 and some cents, you have to look that up, to an address which turned out to be the San Francisco Chronicle, and they gave the telephone number of the newspaper. And so people were just calling, I mean, completely, you know, disrupted the, the newspaper. <laughs> switchboard, and they were arrested, and there was a trial. And in the end, nothing, yes. they didn't get, uh, they didn't get sentenced, because actually, no money, I mean, nothing really, there were really no damages, let's put it that way. But it was a, a subversive, a very subversive piece, and um, so the piece was called uh, Sam's Collection Agency. And that's yes. about documentation of that um, and other of what they did. And they were really a, a group apart. I mean, they really weren't part of any other of the, you know, people in, in the Bay Area. Um, can you talk a little bit about, the, you know, sort of other spaces, um, you know, because, you know, there is a whole section in, in your catalog about the whole idea of, like, different alternative spaces. I mean, um, you know, this was when alternative spaces started to, to, to um, be formed, and that was because there wasn't any place to show this kind of work, and all this work is being done. So artist-run alternative not-for-profit spaces started to evolve, and also because there was government funding for that through the NEA. So um, there still are alternative spaces, but at one time in San Francisco, at least, there were probably 20 of them. And things were going on every single night, and a lot of it was performance. And um, yeah, and yes. nowadays, of course, a lot of that kind of activity, I mean, it's been sort of co-opted by museums now. And that's one thing that there are fewer yes. of these, what we call alternative spaces. But A.D. Lang, 
uh, F station, and, Santa and, Ana, Leica, right. um, Southern Exposure, Camera Work, you know, these are all in, in response to the fact that there was a need for them. And then there's a final sort of subject, which is a subject yeah. of artist books. So, for example, you show these, you start with a piece by Charles Gaines and then another person who became right. a teacher at Camel well, Arts. Gaines is interesting because... Um, um, his work was really very much uh, more like the work on the East Coast or in Europe than in, 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 in California. You know, he cites as an influence Hannah Dabrovin. His work has to do with, uh, um, it's called Regression Series, the piece that we're showing, which is a, a book of early works. And they were done, they were mathematical and other kinds of numerical systems. So they're very, um, uh, very much in line with what was going on in New York. And he was showing in New York very early on. But books in general, I mean, you know, one of the, um, at least in the beginning, I mean, one of the things conceptual art shared is this disdain for, the, uh, for consumerism or the commercialization of art. And they very deliberately were trying to make work that didn't have any commercial value. Of course, that people found ways to commercialize it later is another story. But one of the, one way to do this right. was to produce easily, you know, very inexpensive books that people could acquire for just a few dollars. I mean, we shaved books for, what, five, six dollars at the time. So it was a kind of a democratic impulse and another way to, to show work, or, or, since most of it was photographic, it seemed to be a perfect platform for that. Now, is this show, um, after the Art Museum, is it, is it, it is. traveling it's, anywhere um, else? We, we signed it up with the Independent Curators yes. International, ICI. Right. Because we right. felt that... Right, right. We wanted other people in other parts of the country to know about this work. And so we have, um, I think, three venues. I'm not sure I can tell you all of them yet because I'm not sure about contracts being signed, but I can tell you that one, the first one is at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So we're really happy about that because, Great. you know, there was very active contextual yes. scene in Vancouver. So this makes perfect sense for them. Uh, there are two other venues. I just can't tell you yet. Okay. But there will be three okay. venues at least, and the show will travel. So we're, we're really happy about that. Well, congratulations, and thank you so much. This is I really appreciate this, and I'm thrilled that you we had this well, talk. Well, me too. Okay. Bye-bye.